This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr.org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 778 for release on Sunday, January 21st, 2024. On WaveScan today, the history of 648 kilohertz in the UK, part one, and a report about the NASB, National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters, 2023 annual meeting, where shortwave takes to the high seas. You may know that the medium wave channel of 648 kHz in the UK was allocated in 2017 by Ofcom, the British equivalent of the US Federal Communications Commission, to the former offshore broadcaster Radio Caroline. Alan Beach, chief engineer for Radio Caroline, researched the fascinating and often contradictory history of the frequency, and he wrote an article about it for the BBC engineering journal Signal. Ray Robinson, a friend of Allen's, is now going to read the first part of that history. Thanks, Jeff. During the 1930s, the BBC established two separate broadcast networks or programme streams for the majority of listeners in the UK. The national programme was just that, a single programme originated in London, but broadcast from a network of high-powered sites around the country. It provided a single national service. The accompanying regional programme was mostly broadcast from the same high-powered sites, but carried programmes reflecting and appealing to the various regions of the country, such as the Midlands, the North, London, the West, Scottish and Welsh. Programmes for the regional service were produced in many of the country's large provincial cities, though some were shared between regions, and thus many of the historic broadcasting facilities such as Brookmans Park, Moorside Edge, Lisnagarvi and Droitwich, which continue to this day, came into existence. Here's Alvar Liddell on the regional programme reporting on the German 16-point plan on August the 31st, 1939. This is the regional programme. Here is the fourth news, copyright reserved. The German wireless announced tonight the German government's reply to a British communication and gave the German government's proposals for a settlement of the Polish problem in the following 16 points. Point one. The free city of Danzig should return to the Reich unconditionally and forthwith on account of its purely German character and the unanimous will of its population. 
Much changed during the war, first to supplement the high-powered stations with the addition of over 60 low-powered city transmitters. These were coordinated on a single frequency, 1474 kHz or 203.5 meters, to prevent direction-finding attempts by enemy bomber aircraft. This also meant that a city station could broadcast local programs from a local studio in the event of local issues or loss of program feed from London. Secondly, the regional and national programs were replaced by the home and forces programs, while some geographically advantageous transmitter sites were reallocated to provide overseas transmission facilities into occupied Europe. Here's a clip of the home program on D-Day, June 6, 1944. This is London. London calling in the home, overseas and European services of the BBC and through United Nations Radio Mediterranean. And this is John Snag speaking. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, have just issued communique number one, and in a few seconds I will read it to you. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. Whereas the home programme was to carry serious content to reflect the gravity of the situation, the forces programme was intended to provide light entertainment, comedy, dance band music and generally morale-boosting programmes to take the mind of the servicemen off the grim tasks with which they were faced. Needless to say, the forces programme was also popular amongst the general public. During the war years, the UK government's political warfare executive had undertaken various projects to broadcast into Europe and over the Atlantic, using first their own low-power facilities from Gorkot and Pottsgrove, and then their newly established high-power transmission facility at King's Standing, near Crowborough in Sussex. This facility was built in 1942 and housed what was then the world's largest broadcast transmitter, codenamed Aspidistra, and labelled on site as ASPI-1 or A-1. At the end of hostilities, the home service remained very much as it had been during the war, but with more regional content on a variety of frequencies around the country, while the forces programme was renamed the Light Programme and continued with light entertainment on a national basis. In 1946, the BBC wished to establish an outlet for serious classical music, drama and intellectual cultured programming, and so the imaginatively named third programme was created. After initial broadcasts started in 1946 from Droitwich on 583 kHz at 150 kilowatts, the third programme moved to Daventry from March 1950 on a newly allocated frequency of 647 kHz or 464 metres and using two new Marconi BD206 150 kilowatt transmitters with a 725 foot high centre-fed and top-loaded 5 8 wavelength antenna mast that was designed to provide maximum ground wave and anti-fading propagation. This excellent central site covered the majority of England, so just a small number of low-powered relay sites on 1546 kHz were required for the more distant parts of the UK. And thus, as far as the BBC was concerned, these three separate services could cater fully for the needs of the nation. The light programme, mainly on longwave from Droitwich, but with some medium-wave infill sites on 247 metres, 1215 kHz, 
the regional home service on various medium wave frequencies, and the third program. After the war, ASPI 1 continued to broadcast at 500 kilowatts, though the programs were generally of the BBC European service, rather than the various shades of black, grey and white propaganda for which it had originally been built. Although the government and BBC were quite happy for the Crowborough facility to broadcast into Europe, they were less than enthusiastic that one of the many cross-border pre-war stations, namely Radio Luxembourg, decided to recommence transmissions targeted at UK audiences. The government tried just about every means within their jurisdiction to prevent it and discourage people from listening. However, with just three radio services available, all of which were run by various BBC committees, it's no wonder that Luxembourg rose to such prominence during the 1950s with its popular commercial programming. We'll roll on now to 1967. The Marine Etc. Broadcasting Offences Act attempted to outlaw the offshore broadcasting stations and the need for an all-day popular music channel was finally recognised at government level. At the end of September, the light programme was split into two. The long-wave service continued as before, but was renamed Radio 2, and the medium-wave infills launched the new pop music service, Radio 1. Powerful additional transmitters at Droitwich and Washford had to be commissioned to provide Radio 1 in the areas where there was only long-wave coverage of the light programme, and conversely, New medium-wave transmitters in Scotland provided Radio 2 in areas where 247 metres, 1215 kHz, was now carrying Radio 1. The third programme became Radio 3, still on 647 kHz, 464 metres, from Daventry, and the regional home service became Radio 4, principally a national service, but with regional opt-outs on various regional frequencies. This is the way the BBC Home Service closed down for the last time on Friday, September the 29th, 1967. The time is just now 10 minutes to 12. This is David Dunhill. And this is the end of the Home Service for today and for all days. In one sense, I suppose, we're like a bride on the eve of her wedding. We go on being the same person, we hope, but we'll never again have the same name. Tomorrow at 6.35am, we become... Radio 4, and in spite of DJ Chris Denning, who's just appeared on television with a shirt carrying the words, Death to the Home Service, uh, in spite of him we expect to live happily ever afterwards. So, goodbye, Home Service, two of the best words in the British language. And still, I'm sure, the only answer you can give to the question, what is Radio 4? Two more words we shan't erase. Good night. The coverage of Radio 1 and Radio 2 was somewhat lacking, with parts of the country unable to receive satisfactorily one or other of the programmes, so further changes became necessary, but it took a jaw-dropping 11 years to effect. November 23, 1978 saw a major reorganisation of radio channels across all of Europe, including the alignment of all stations to 9 kHz channel spacing. The BBC took advantage of this alignment to implement major changes to their medium-wave and long-wave stations. The growing rollout of local radio during the 1970s meant that the need for regional content on Radio 4 was redundant, so Radio 4 became a national service and moved on to the 1500-metre long-wave channel, freeing up four high-powered medium-wave channels which were then reallocated around the country and split into two groups. 
330 and 433 metres, the former London and Northern Home transmissions, and 275 and 285 metres, the former Midlands and West Home transmissions. Additional transmitters were introduced on each of these four wavelengths, but alternately staggered around the country, such that any overlap or mush zone between adjacent sites was minimised. 330 and 433 metres, or 909 and 693 kHz on the newly aligned 9 kHz channels, were assigned for Radio 2, whilst 275 and 285 metres, 1089 and 1053 kHz, were allocated to Radio 1. Radio 3, in turn, got the old hand-me-down poor coverage of Radio 1's old 247 metres, 1215 kHz, though it had national full-time coverage on VHF-FM, which, by 1978, its listeners were more likely to use. Accordingly, the old Radio 3 frequency, which became 648 kHz, was no longer in service for domestic programmes. As this was the lowest medium-wave channel allocated to the BBC, it could offer the best daytime ground-wave coverage and, combined with the fact that the channel was mostly in the clear across Europe, it was an ideal frequency for the European programmes of the World Service. Consequently, it was put into use at 500 kilowatts from the Crowborough site in Sussex. Some may consider it rather strange that the BBC's best medium-wave channel served only an overseas audience, whilst Radio 3 listeners got the worst coverage of the medium-wave national networks. But of course, all this took place at the height of the Cold War. With the Aspie 1 500kW transmitter equipment at Crowborough approaching 40 years old, it was coming to the end of its useful life, and a replacement was required. Although coverage into Europe from Crowborough was good, the site was still some way inland, having been sighted to hide it from enemy warships and aircraft, resulting in much signal being wasted before it reached the English Channel. Well, next week we'll continue the story to see where the BBC moved the 648 kHz channel to next and how it came to be allocated to Radio Caroline. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Ray. Ray Robinson there at The Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. Well, the last time that member station WRMI in Florida had hosted an NASB annual meeting, that's the National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters, was in 2011 when the conference took place on a cruise ship from Miami to Nassau in the Bahamas. By 2023, it was high time for WRMI to host another NASB annual meeting, and we also chose to do the meeting on a cruise ship from Miami to the Bahamas. After all, the cost of the three-night cruise was only a few hundred dollars, much less than it would cost for three nights of hotel accommodation in Miami, or anywhere else in the U.S. for that matter. And on the ship, all meals and a lot of entertainment were also included at no extra cost. And as a double bonus, the NASB member package included free Wi-Fi, which is expensive at sea, and free drinks of all types. So you really couldn't beat that deal. So nearly 30 shortwave broadcasters and listeners signed up for the trip, which took place December 1st to 4th, 2023, on the MSC Magnifica, a cruise ship with roughly 3,000 passengers and 1,000 crew members on board, sailing from Miami to Ocean Key in the Bahamas, and then back to Miami. MSC is a large Italian shipping company. You'll see MSC shipping containers all over the world, with over 50 years of history and 35 years in the cruise business. But can you really have a meeting on a cruise ship? Well, absolutely. 
The Magnifica has a very nice meeting room with seating for more than 30 persons, and it's equipped with all of the standard audiovisual equipment that modern meetings require. We also purchased a special high-speed internet service that allowed us to stream videos and hold video conferences. In past years, internet service on cruise ships was slow and spotty, but nowadays the ships are getting satellite internet services such as Starlink that work almost as well as on land. The ship left Port Miami on Friday afternoon, December 1st, after a mandatory safety drill that briefly interrupted the first round of NASB presentations. As the Magnifica was preparing to leave, NASB delegates were gathered in the Deck 6 meeting room. Everyone first introduced themselves to the group and explained a little bit about their organization or their involvement with shortwave radio. The first speaker on the agenda was Tim Whitehead, CEO of Galcom International, talking about their new model of fixed-tuned radio receivers. Tim brought five prototype radios with him for NASB folks to look at and try out before the company began to ship out thousands of them around the world. Try out might be a bit of an exaggeration in a meeting room on a cruise ship where the isolation and various electrical noises didn't permit much reception of anything, but Tim was able to show how they work, and the self-contained audio Bibles on the receivers did function. There are various interesting aspects of the Galcom Compass radios, which are about the size of a small cell phone, but maybe twice as thick. First of all, you notice the whole back side of the radio consists of a built-in solar panel. Exposure to light will charge the internal lithium-ion rechargeable batteries, which are expected to last many years. The Compass, just like Galcom's previous GoYi and GoTel models, has a hard plastic case which is Fisher-Price quality, they say, virtually indestructible. That's important in some of the rural areas where these radios are distributed. And of course, many of those areas don't have easy access to batteries or electricity, so the solar power is of great importance. In case other power is available, the radio can be recharged with a micro-USB cable. The whole idea of Galcom radios from the beginning in 1989 was that they could be distributed to persons by Christian radio stations, and the radios could be fixed-tuned to the station's frequency. The new Compass receivers can be programmed with five different frequencies, any combination of shortwave, medium wave, and FM, to pick up multiple frequencies used by a station or to pick up multiple stations. The cost of these receivers is $30 each. Stations can order radios by contacting Galcom at galcom.org. Tim told the group that Galcom has distributed over 1.5 million receivers in 147 countries around the world. Galcom engineers often assist local people to set up low-powered Christian radio stations of their own, usually but not always on FM, in such far-flung locations as Greenland, which has lots of towns that are not connected by roads but can be reached by radio, and Haiti, after the most recent earthquake there. One of the major target areas right now is South Sudan, where a local partner has set up four high-power FM stations. Galcom assisted a group in Micronesia to set up a low-powered tropical band shortwave station in recent years. In its home country of Canada, Galcom has established a network of stations across the vast territory in First Nations areas and another network in the province of Quebec. Radio gets to places where TV signals, internet, and people can't get to, said Tim. 
When you're talking about shortwave, you're bouncing it off the ionosphere. There's nowhere it can't go. He mentioned places like South American jungles, African villages, the Andes of Bolivia and Ecuador, where there's no electricity. One of the most famous stories of Galcom radio distribution involved an American pastor named Russell Stendhal in Colombia, who operates two tropical band shortwave stations on 5910 and 6010 kHz. They transmit to remote parts of the Colombian jungle. Russell is a pilot, and he flew over remote areas inhabited by the FARC rebels, where he would drop Galcom radios fixed-tuned to his shortwave stations using small parachutes to launch over 30,000 radios into the jungle. Stendhal was even captured by the rebels once and held for 150 days until his family paid a $50,000 ransom to release him. He had developed such a close relationship with the rebels that he felt a great burden to bring them Christian radio programming and send them radios so they could hear it. Now he's using the stations to transmit peace and reconciliation programming to Venezuelans as well. Stendhal has published two books about his work, Rescue the Captors and Rescue the Captors Two. Tim called Russell the Indiana Jones for missionaries. <laughs> To help organizations broadcast locally, Galcom has developed what it calls the Omni Station, which is a portable FM broadcast station in two suitcases. It includes two microphones with stands, a CD, USB, SD card player, headphones, a computer with playout and recording software, an audio compressor, a 250-watt transmitter, antenna and coaxial cable, a portable receiver, and a dummy load. It operates on 100 to 240 volts AC, and it can be programmed to transmit on any frequency from 88 to 108 megahertz. Galcom produces a weekly 30-minute radio program about its work and the stations it works with called Mission Compass. The program can be heard on shortwave on WRMI, currently at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday on 9955 kilohertz. You can find more information about Galcom at www.galcom, that's G-A-L-C-O-M, dot O-R-G. Steve Palmer from Encompass Digital Media, a UK-based company that recently rejoined the NASB, was scheduled to be at the NASB meeting, but he had to cancel at the last minute for medical reasons. Steve was scheduled to present an introduction to Encompass, which will be rescheduled for the 2024 annual meeting. So his time slot was used to carry out the mandatory MSC safety drill, where passengers had to watch a short safety video in their cabins and then report to their muster station, where they would gather if there were an actual emergency on the ship. After the safety break, Jerome Irigoyen of NESB associate member Telediffusion de France presented an update on his company's DRMcast project. From TDF's large 12 shortwave transmitter site in Issoudun, France, they can transmit digital DRM signals to certain areas of the world where they can be picked up with DRM receivers and then rebroadcast via Wi-Fi internet to local areas, such as African villages and ships at sea. TDF has been partnering with organizations such as the BBC to test the DRM cast system. Initial results have been very positive. Jerome said that DRM cast can be used for educational purposes, for example, to transmit to schools in remote areas or for emergency transmissions to areas affected by natural disasters. 
After a break following the initial afternoon session, the group met for dinner in the Quattroventi main dining room, where we had three large tables to accommodate all of the NASB participants and their spouses. Immediately following dinner, there was a show in the ship's large theater featuring MSC singers and dancers performing music of Elvis Presley. Well, the next day, Saturday, December 2nd, the ship was at sea all day. Everyone was on their own for breakfast. Most went to the very large buffet area up on deck 13. A few of us slept in and skipped breakfast. At 10 a.m., we were all back in the meeting room for the next session of NASB meetings. Gerhard Straub kicked things off. Gerhard recently retired as longtime director of the Broadcast Technologies Division of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, USAGM, which is an NASB associate member and which operates the Voice of America, Radio and TV Marti, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, the Middle East Broadcasting Networks, and Radio Free Asia. In Gerhard's Musings of a Radio Engineer, he told the NASB group about his travels, an update on the Kuwait project of USAGM, and his personal perspective on aspects of shortwave and government broadcasting in particular. Gerhard showed a map which indicated the closures of USAGM shortwave and mediumwave relay sites around the world in Cyprus, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, the United Arab Emirates, and Porto in the Philippines. The USAGM-owned or exclusively leased sites that remain are the following. In the Western Hemisphere, Greenville, North Carolina, and Marathon, Florida, that's the Radio Marti medium wave site. In Europe, Lampertheim and Biblis in Germany. In Africa, Djibouti, Sao Tome, and Botswana. In Asia and the Pacific, Bangkok and Udorn in Thailand, Saipan and Tinian in the Northern Mariana Islands, and Tinang in the Philippines. And in the Middle East and Central Asia, Kuwait and Tajikistan. The Kuwait site is used extensively due to its strategic location and the low electricity costs. Currently, the site has six 250-kilowatt shortwave transmitters and six antennas, one of them rotatable. An expansion plan currently being implemented will add more space in the transmitter hall for four more transmitters and four more antennas beamed to Africa. The USAGM's Broadcast Technologies Division has a lot of responsibilities. It does propagation analysis and coverage prediction for shortwave, mediumwave, VHF, and UHF transmissions. It designs and implements FM, mediumwave, and shortwave systems for facilities around the world. It does shortwave frequency coordination at the HFCC conferences twice a year. It also monitors those transmissions via a global network of automated monitoring receivers. And it leases airtime for USAGM transmissions on outside shortwave and medium wave facilities. And we'll continue with our report about the 2023 NASB annual meeting next week on WaveScan. Steel Drum Music ends WaveScan today, performed by the group Steel Rhythm on Humarock Beach in, of all places, Situate, Massachusetts, which is where WYFR shortwave was located. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. 
researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson, and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson. Next week, our main feature will be the history of 648 kilohertz in the UK, part two. And we'll have more about the NASB 2023 annual meeting between Miami and the Bahamas. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to The Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is bible at awr.org. Or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 